0: Welcome to another edition of the American Bankruptcy Institute podcasts, which feature conversations with prominent figures in the bankruptcy world about topics of interest to our members. I am Laura Bartell, Professor of Law at Wayne State University Law School, and current resident scholar at the American Bankruptcy Institute. I am pleased to welcome as my guest today, Professor David Skeel, the S. Samuel Arsht Professor of Corporate Law at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. Professor Skeel is the author of Debt's Dominion, A History of Bankruptcy Law in America, and Icarus in the Boardroom, The Fundamental Flaws in Corporate America and Where They Came From. Today we will be talking about his book entitled, The New Financial Deal, Understanding the Dodd-Frank Act and Its Unintended Consequences, which will soon be published by John Wiley & Sons. David, thank you for joining me. Your book is about the enactment of the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act in July 2010 and its implications for the future of the U.S. financial industry. Why was the prior regulatory scheme, which was adopted during the Great Depression of the 1930s, inadequate to prevent the financial crisis of 2008 and 2009?
1: Well, just just to back up one step, one of the remarkable things about it was that it was adequate for so long, until the 1980s and arguably even the 1990s, it, it worked brilliantly well. But what really made it obsolete was the emergence of the so-called shadow banking system, the, um, the use of derivatives and financial other financial innovations, and financing transactions which were entirely outside the traditional channels of finance. That that uh, performed the same function as bank loans but didn't look like bank loans, weren't subject to the, to the same kind of regulation. So there really, in the last 20 years or so, has emerged a new financial world, and the old system um, wasn't, wasn't adequate to deal with it, as you suggested.
0: Now, in your book, you argue that the Dodd-Frank Act, which was, of course, enacted to deal with these problems, was fatally flawed because it was primarily structured by the same individuals who orchestrated the 2008 bailouts of Bear Stearns and AIG. Why wouldn't those people who had to deal with the 2008 financial crisis be in the best position to propose legislation that would prevent such a crisis in the future?
1: Well, there there is an argument that the, the folks who were there and saw what the inadequacies of the framework were um, would be in a, a good position to to think forward, but there also is a real danger that they can't get outside what they were doing in two thousand and eight. That um, that their mindset is really structured by tools they had then and the way they thought about the issues then, and and I really think that that is reflected in the legislation. The the principal architects of the 2008 bailouts, uh, Hank Paulson and, and now Treasury Secretary Tim Geithner and Ben Bernanke, really look at these issues it seems to me with a particular mindset and the particular mindset is when there's when there's trouble you you bail the institution out and I think it would have been helpful perhaps to have their wisdom I I wouldn't say it's it's terrible that they they shouldn't be involved in any way but it was very surprising that that nobody else with a significantly different perspective was was involved there was no one involved uh, who was less sympathetic to bailouts, less sympathetic to, uh, to giant financial institutions, more sympathetic to uh, ideas like perhaps scaling them down a bit.
0: Now, of course, the federal government did not bail out Lehman Brothers and allowed it instead to file for bankruptcy protection. Conventional wisdom attributes the financial crisis to that decision. You call this in your book the Lehman myth. Why is it a myth?
1: well it's it 's a myth because several of of the key components of the logic are simply in my view inconsistent with what happened the The story is, as you uh, just described is that everything was was going more or less okay. We had a lot of problems, but they um, it wasn 't catastrophe. Then Lehman Brothers filed for bankruptcy. Bankruptcy didn't work. It triggered all of the chaos that followed. And and there are a couple different problems with that. Um, and I'll just mention two. One is that if, if you look at what was going on in the markets in the fall of 2008, it's not at all clear that Lehman's bankruptcy fall, filing was uh, the principal trigger, uh, and certainly not that it was. Uh, it, it, certainly doesn't look to have been the sole trigger, so that the reaction to AIG's bailout a couple of days later was just as dramatic as the market reaction to to Lehman Brothers. The biggest reaction at all came not from from Lehman or from Lehman's bankruptcy or the AIG bailout, but from the announcement by uh, then Treasury Secretary Henry Paulson that he needed seven and Treasury well Treasury needed seven hundred billion dollars to uh, stave off financial armageddon. And, th- and that's really when things uh, started to unravel. So one problem with the Lehman myth, as I call it, is it doesn't look like Lehman was, was even the principal trigger, much less the sole trigger. The other problem is that the Lehman myth assumes, uh, assumes a way, uh, what I see is, is the core fact about what had happened in 2008. And that is, six months earlier when the government bailed out burns bear stearns they basically sent the message to the market that any large troubled investment bank was going to be bailed out lehman came along everybody thought lehman was going to be bailed out lehman thought it was going to be bailed out its buyer barclays thought it was going to be bailed out the markets thought lehman was going to be bailed out and then lo and behold the government pulled the rug out from under that assumption and and in my view the bait and switch by the government was really what made um lehman so shocking It, it wasn't the fact that an investment bank had filed for bankruptcy
0: You point out in your book that the contemporary financial markets had become very risky and that the Dodd-Frank Act was designed in part to minimize the risk by regulating both the instruments of the financial markets, primarily derivatives, and the institutions that were deemed too big to fail. Let's start by talking a bit about derivatives. What are derivatives and and how does Dodd-Frank try to make them less risky?
1: Well, a derivative is simply a contract between two parties uh, whose value or, or whose payoff is based on a, um, a market price or interest rates or, or the value of currencies, of a currency. Or on the, uh, the the payoff is based on the occurrence of some designated event, such as a default by a, a company on its debt. So a driven is really just a, a contract whose payoff is based on on some other event or some other um, other value. Um, and I've forgotten what the second half of your question was.
0: <laughs> how does Dodd Frank try to make these less risky?
1: So how does uh, Dodd Frank uh, try to make them? less risky. The main things that Dodd Frank does is it subjects most of them to a clearinghouse arrangement. It requires or it's it's intended to require that most derivatives be cleared. And the significance of this is the clearinghouse will act as a guarantor of the performance of both parties to the contract. So, if 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 the next Lehman Brothers defaults on its derivatives, the clearinghouse will step in and make good on those those contracts. So, the clearinghouse arrangement is designed both to to minimize the likelihood that that will happen because the clearinghouse will require that um, that so-called margin be put up but also to, to stand behind the two parties as a guarantor. The, the other big contribution of Dodd-Frank is, is a parallel requirement that most of these contracts be traded on organized exchanges rather than simply negotiated privately and and in many cases in secret. So derivatives are intended to trade a little bit more like a a share of stock, and they're intended to be a little bit more standardized, a little bit more um, transparent, and the hope is that that, too, will help to to minimize the risk of of derivatives transactions. In my view in the book, in the book I am, as you know, very critical about much of Dodd-Frank, but I, I do think the derivatives provisions are an important step forward.
0: Another aspect of Dodd-Frank was, as I mentioned before, aimed at uh, institutions that are basically too big to fail. What institutions does Dodd-Frank define to be too big to fail?
1: Well, uh, an advocate of Dodd-Frank would resist the suggestion that Dodd-Frank defines anybody to be too big to fail and and would argue that the resolution rules are set up uh, to make sure that nobody is any more too big to fail. Um, But in reality uh, it seems clear to me that that many institutions will still be too big to fail and, and the designation in dodd-frank that points towards that is a designation of what are referred to as systemically important institutions they actually have different terminology in in dodd-frank itself but they're colloquially uh, referred to as systemically important institutions what dodd-frank says about that is with bank holding companies with commercial banks Uh, Any bank holding company that has $50 billion in assets is automatically in this category, this special category of of institutions. Uh, With respect to other kinds of financial institutions, investment banks, insurance companies, potentially hedge funds, Dodd-Frank doesn't automatically designate any of them, but it gives the new financial uh, Stability Oversight Council, the new Council of of Regulators, the power to designate particular institutions. So Dodd Frank says any bank with over 50 billion dollars in assets, any institution designated by the new Council will be in this special category, will be subject to special uh, regulation. The real danger is that. St- setting this group of institutions aside uh, and treating them differently will signal to the market that they're too big to fail.
0: You said treating these institutions differently. In what way are these institutions, these systemically important institutions, treated differently to minimize the risk of their failure?
1: Well, Dodd-Frank gives regulators the power, and it, it very strongly encourages them, to impose uh, different obligations, particularly capital, uh, higher capital requirements, on, uh, on these systemically important institutions. So the idea is that these institutions will have to have a bigger buffer um, in the event that they, that they face a downturn. And uh, the hope is that if the capital requirements are, are stiff enough, these institutions, even if there is an economic crisis, these, e- e- these uh, institutions will be able to withstand it. So the capital requirements are the main thing. That, uh, that Dodd-Frank did and that people think about. There are also a number of other provisions, such as a provision that gives regulators uh, the power to, um, to, in the extreme, if there's a real financial crisis uh, and systemic stability is at risk, to force these institutions to divest of some of their assets if, um, if that would make them safer. Uh, and there are a range of provisions that are a little bit less dramatic than that. But there there are a number of tools that Dodd-Frank gives regulators uh, to try to control the risk of these institutions.
0: One of the late concessions made to obtain support for passage of the Dodd-Frank Act from those who wanted to limit the activities of large banks was the inclusion of the so-called Volcker Rule. What is the Volcker Rule?
1: Well, the Volcker Rule, and and as you started to say that, I realized I should have mentioned that. I'm glad you brought that up. brought that up, is another thing that is designed to limit risk. The Volcker rule is named for the former Treasury Secretary, Paul Volcker, who was an advocate of of not so much breaking up the big financial institutions, but trying to constrain them and hopefully to reduce them in size. The particular provision he ended up proposing, and that ultimately got included in uh, in Dodd Frank, really over the administration's resistance, but it did get it did get included. Is this Volcker rule? And what the Volcker rule does uh, does two main things. One is. It prohibits commercial banks from engaging in what's known as proprietary trading, trading of stock or bonds or or other uh, investments for their own account. It's designed to make commercial banks look more like traditional commercial, um, commercial banks. The other thing it does is it limits the investment that a commercial bank or a commercial bank holding company can have uh, in hedge funds and equity funds. It limits those investments to 3% of, um, of the bank's, I think, the bank's assets, and it has a couple of other qualifications uh, as well. So two main things it does, uh, outlaws in commercial bank holding companies, the systemically important ones, um, proprietary trading, and also limits their ability to own or invest in hedge funds and equity funds.
0: If a systemically important uh, financial institution does face financial collapse, what happens under Dodd-Frank?
1: Well, what happens, in my view, is it gets bailed out, um, uh, is what is likely to happen. but what Dodd Frank contemplates will happen, what Dodd Frank wants to happen, is for a new set of resolution rules to be used to take over and ultimately to liquidate uh, the systemically important institution. The resolution rules are uh, one could look at them as a substitute for bankruptcy or one could look at them as treating uh, the giant the systemically important institutions comparably to the way ordinary banks are treated, which is resolving them through um, a, an administrative process. The idea under the resolution rules is that if a if, uh, f- large, systemically important financial institution is in trouble, Treasury will propose that the resolution rules be triggered. Uh, that proposal will go forward if two-thirds of the Federal Reserve and two-thirds of the FDIC um agree that this is what should be done uh, after consultation with the president as well this is this is known as three keys turning the three keys being treasury the fdic and the fed uh, so they will trigger a uh, trigger the resolution rules either voluntarily if the institution's managers agree or by filing a petition uh, in the district court in the District of Columbia if the institution doesn't agree. And then the FDIC will be appointed as, as receiver uh, it, it, unless it's an insurance company or a um, an investment bank but if it's a if it's a bank holding company commercial bank holding company the fdic will be appointed as receiver and the theory is that the fdic will either directly liquidate the institution or it will transfer some or all of the institutions assets to a bridge bank to a transition entity and in theory again uh... liquidate the institution over time i say in theory because Dodd-frank is designed or the resolution rules are designed with liquidation in mind and there's even a provision in dodd-frank that say it says they must be liquidated but it turns out that the FDIC could effectively reorganize one of these institutions if it um, if it used the The bridge bank approach there are ways that that could achieve what in effect is is a reorganization but the idea is if one of these institutions is in trouble uh the three keys will turn when it looks like it's about to default and then the resolution rules will be used to handle the financial distress
0: is this new resolution authority comparable to the current role the fdic plays with respect to failing depository institutions?
1: It's very similar in, in most respects. And, in fact, the analogy to the FDIC um, was, was repeatedly invoked as a reason to go this route with respect to, to dealing with uh, failing large financial institution. So it's designed to be like the FDIC administrative resolution uh, approach. There are there are a number of differences. Um, there are a number of bankruptcy provisions that were incorporated into the resolution rules. So it doesn't look precisely like resolu- uh, like FDIC resolution, but it looks a lot like that, and that frankly worries me because my my view of fdic resolution is that it works fairly effectively for small and medium-sized banks the fdic secretly um, steps in on a friday afternoon it's lined up a buyer it closes the bank over the weekend and everything's open again on monday that works fairly well for a small or medium-sized bank The FDIC strategy doesn't work, in my view, very well at all with large banks uh, for a couple of reasons. One is there just aren't lots of obvious buyers for a bank like Citigroup or, or Bank of America um, and then the other danger in my view is even if you do find a buyer for one of these institutions what you're going to end up doing is making a large potentially dominant institution even larger and more dominant which is what happened with J.P. Morgan Chase uh, over the course of the the crisis as they they bought several of the failing institutions
0: Has the Lehman Brothers bankruptcy been such a disaster for Lehman? And if not, why did Congress think that the bankruptcy code was not an adequate legislative scheme to deal with troubled financial institutions?
1: Well, I I think the Lehman uh, bankruptcy uh, has gone very smoothly comparatively, although I, I'll stick in a footnote here, which is I'd love to hear what you think about the Lehman bankruptcy as uh, an expert, among other things, about expenses in bankruptcy. Uh, I I read a few pap- uh, stories in, uh, in the I have read a few stories in the last a uh, couple of days that have talked about just how big the fees are and the fees apparently have professionals' fees have gone over a billion dollars in lehman so um there are are some folks who would say that's that's a high price to pay for what has been accomplished in the lehman brothers bankruptcy but the bankruptcy has proceeded remarkably smoothly in my view the 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 most time sensitive asset the thing that had to be dealt with right away was the brokerage business, and the brokerage business was sold in four days. It was sold almost as as soon as Lehman filed for bankruptcy. The less time-sensitive parts of the business have been dealt with more slowly and over time, and, and overall, I think that's worked pretty well. There were some hiccups, particularly in the beginning, but I, I think most of those hiccups we're due less to bankruptcy than to the fact that there was absolutely no preparation for the bankruptcy. I, I forget how long before Lehman filed for bankruptcy, Harvey Miller and Weil Gottschall had to get ready for the bankruptcy, but I think it was something like 12 hours, um, and there had been no bankruptcy preparation before the weekend that that Lehman filed for bankruptcy. So that created a lot of confusion at the beginning of the case, but um, but the bankruptcy itself, I think, is going pretty well.
0: So why not let troubled financial institutions simply file for bankruptcy?
1: I think we generally should. Um, I I think it's a mistake to assume that they have to be dealt with in an alternative system. Now I don't I don't think bankruptcy is perfect. The one set of rules that I would change. Uh, to uh, In the, the current bankruptcy code is a, speci- a set of rules that give special treatment for derivatives, the, the financial in- instruments we've been talking about, as a result of lobbying by the derivatives industry and also the concurrence of the Treasury and Fed over the last 30 years derivatives and other financial innovations have been almost completely protected from the core provisions of bankruptcy in particular the automatic stay so when there is a bankruptcy filing the automatic stay stops other creditors from terminating their contracts and and trying to collect what they're owed but it it has no effect on derivatives creditors and I, i think this is a problem for a financial institution that's um, that's filing for bankruptcy, but even with the existing laws, I think that bankruptcy ordinarily is adequate, um, and with this change, I think it, it would be um, even, even more adequate. The principal argument against bankruptcy is an argument that bankruptcy doesn't handle systemic risk, that it, it's not designed to focus on third-party effects, market-wide effects of, of the bankruptcy filing. It's meant to focus more on the particular parties, the debtor and its immediate creditors. That is true in general, but it doesn't, um, it doesn't undermine, in my view, the fact that, that third-party effects can be taken into consideration in bankruptcy, and as a practical matter, they are, and bankruptcy works quite well.
0: In the book, you are supportive of the two goals of Dodd-Frank, that is, to make the modern financial system less risky and to limit the negative impact of a failure by a major financial institution. But you are highly critical of the methods by which the Act attempts to achieve those goals. In particular, you argue that the legislation demonstrates, to quote you in the book, a government partnership with the largest financial institutions – And ad hoc intervention by regulators, rather than a more predictable rules-based response to crises, could you explain what you mean by that critique?
1: Uh, That's a good quote. Um, uh, uh, Well, one thing I mean is exactly what we've been talking about: the the FDIC resolution mechanism, administrative uh, resolution, is. Quite ad hoc, it is. It gives a huge amount of discretion to the FDIC. The FDIC can effectively pick and choose which creditors it wants to pay and which creditors it doesn't pay. And Dodd Frank tries to limit this in some in in some respects. But at the end of the day, um, Dodd Frank resolution is very ad hoc, uh, involves a lot of discretion, doesn't give much of an opportunity to second-guess what the fdic does there's, there's essentially no effective judicial review so that's a big part of what i'm talking about i'm talking about the contrast between bankruptcy which is generally rule-oriented much more transparent on the one hand and administrative resolution by the fdic on the other on the other hand um, the other thing i'm talking about is that the the guiding um conception of the regulation of the big financial institutions the the institutions of contemporary finance is a conception that envisions regulators interacting with a small group of dominant financial institutions doesn't try to to break them up or reduce the concentration in the financial services industry instead what what Dodd-Frank primarily tries to do is just give regulators tools for dealing with them, such as some of the tools we were talking about um, earlier, the capital requirements and and the Volcker rule. The danger in this, or a couple dangers uh, in this, it seems to me. One is, I think ideally we would be pushing these institutions to, to scale down rather than scale up. I think we have uh, too much concentration currently in the financial services industry at, at the high end in in, um, um, in particular. There's also a danger, in my view, because there's so much discretion in the enforcement of many of these provisions that there will essentially be political deals between um, government regulators and the banks. The banks will be allowed to do what what they wanna do as long as uh, they lend to industries that are favored by the government and shy away with industries from industries that aren't favored um, by the government. So so my, my worry is that we'll have this sort of informal uh, partnership between the government and, and the big institutions that will further politicize um, financial services.
0: Now you pointed out historically this type of partnership between institutions and the government was only one method of dealing with the risk of large financial institutions the other being breaking up the large institution to promote competition why did Congress take the first course rather than the second
1: Well, I really think Congress took the first course because that's what the administration was pushing for. The, the principal architects of Dodd Frank within the administration were Treasury Secretary Geithner and um, and Larry Summers, um, and both of them really come from the the government bank partnership side of the traditional American. Um, uh, fight or battle or argument between that view and the we should break them up view, the, the Louis Brandeis um, um, view. So I really think there was a, a path dependence component to it, or more than just path dependence. First, the the initial proposal came from the administration, that's what Summers and, and Geithner were thinking, were thinking in terms of this government bank partnership um... and so that was part of another part of it was obviously the administration had a huge amount of influence over the way things developed even after the the original uh... proposal but i i continue to be surprised that there wasn't a voice within the inner circle of the administration for the alternative view the president has repeatedly sought out multiple views on important issues and, uh, in fact is, has drawn on, uh, drawn on, uh, uh, Abraham Lincoln's presidency and FDR's presidency. Um, both of which involved competing views within the administration as a role model um, for the current administration. But somehow on the economic side, there really wasn't a, a representative of the break them up or small is beautiful or try to promote competition view. The only representative of that view was Paul Volcker and he was very much on the outside until late in the legislative process the the administration came around to his view on the Volcker rule um, really it looks like because they they felt like they had no other choice after Scott Brown was elected senator of Massachusetts the message the administration took from that is that that there was a real populist hostility toward Wall Street and they ought uh, that they needed to at least concede a little bit to that hostility in the legislation.
0: How does Dodd-Frank deal with the complexity of financial difficulties at multinational financial institutions?
1: Well, Dodd-Frank doesn't do a whole lot with that. To, to a certain extent, I think that's inevitable, because the U.S. Congress um, can't, obviously can't legislate for the rest of the world. But it, it's clear that one of the key problems with the large financial institutions and their failure is that the failures are international in scope when a Lehman Brothers or um, if a Citigroup were to fail there's a big effect here in the US but there also are effects all over the world Dodd-Frank does very little to, uh, to try to deal with that. The main thing Dodd-Frank does is encourages collaboration and cooperation between American regulators and, and foreign regulators. The one piece of Dodd-Frank that I think is, is most promising on, on this score is something that wasn't designed with international issues explicitly in view, although it, it, they clearly were in view. And that's the so-called living will requirement, or what Dodd-Frank calls rapid resolution plans. There's a new requirement that the large, the systemically important institutions on a regular basis, at least annually, prepare for regulators a plan as to how the institution would do, would deal with the crisis, what it would do. if uh, if it were to fail and how the institution would prevent its failure from having negative systemic consequences. I think those living wills or rapid resolution plans are the most promising international component of Dodd-Frank. If regulators are aggressive about forcing the institutions to be serious about these plans. To, to do what's known as war gaming them, to, to do trial test runs of what the institution would do in the event of a, of a crisis, we actually could make um, some progress on dealing with the potential international ramifications.
0: One major aspect of the Dodd-Frank Act that you characterize as an unexpected triumph was the inclusion of the provisions creating the new Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Why was such a new agency needed, and what is it likely to accomplish?
1: Why I believe it was needed, and I'm, I'm taking this like most of us are from Elizabeth Warren, who's been, who was the principal proponent of the new Consumer Bureau. Why it was needed was because, well, first of all, consumer protection was scattered through a number of, of different regulators. Um, The Fed had a major consumer protection role, the Treasury had a role, um, other regulators had a role as well. Um, And even more importantly than the fact that it was scattered and wasn't very well coordinated is the principal regulators uh, had what appeared to be a conflict of interest, and this was most striking with the Fed. The Fed was meant to be the primary uh, consumer protector with respect to financial services issues, but the Fed also focuses on financial stability, and in fact focuses much more on financial uh, stability than it than it does uh, and financial stability generally, and also financial stability of the banking industry than it does on co- uh, on consumer protection, and that the Fed arguably has a conflict of interest in this respect, uh, focusing on. Uh, or what's good for my financial stability or uh, banking stability may be bad for consumers so to give a a simple illustration practices that gouge consumers say enable um, credit card banks to make big profits actually are great for the for the banking industry they promote the stability of the banking industry but at the same time they hurt consumers and I believe that it's important that consumers have an unconflicted um, protector. And, and that is what, hopefully, the Consumer Bureau will provide. Now, uh, there's lots of uncertainty about the Bureau. The Bureau has a huge amount of power. It's, it's largely insulated from oversight, and, and a lot of folks are worried about that. Um, but in concept, I think it's a good idea.
0: Well, we are unfortunately out of time. I want to thank our guest, Professor David Skeel of the University of Pennsylvania Law School, for discussing with us his new book, The New Financial Deal, Understanding the Dodd-Frank Act and Its Unintended Consequences. If you enjoyed this podcast, I invite you to access any of the 90 podcasts on file at www.abiworld.org. This is Laura Bartell resident scholar at the American Bankruptcy Institute. Thank you for joining us.